Hello and welcome to another episode of Livewire's Rules of Investing. I'm your host and editor at Livewire, Patrick Polk. Today's special guest is Nick Griffin, founding partner and chief investment officer of Munro Partners. After more than a decade running a global growth strategy at a leading Melbourne-based fund manager, two and a half years ago, Nick founded Munro Partners based on this same growth philosophy. In the full interview, we discuss how a handful of stocks are responsible for almost the entire return of the S&P 500, why Netflix could be a $400 billion company, and why Amazon is still cheap at current levels. Don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, follow us on Twitter at LiveWireMarkets, and visit our website, livewiremarkets.com. I hope you enjoy the show. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks, Patrick. Well, let's jump straight into it and hear a bit about your philosophy. So I know you're a growth investor. So why do you think that growth is the right way to invest? Um, I'm not, we're not exactly militant that growth is the right way to invest. It's the way we invest and we think there's lots of great growth investors out there that have done very well for a long period of time. Um, so there's no shortage of evidence whether you look at a T. Rowe Price or a Bally Gifford or an MFS, that, that growth investing can work over a long period of time. Um, I don't think that value is the wrong way to invest. It's just that we happen to be good at growth investing and that's what we do. Um, and I think we blend very well in, a, in, in, in an equity portfolio. That's how we would look at it. We're not, we're not vehemently one side of the equation. It's just what works best for us. For you personally, what was it that brought you to this philosophy and made you say, you know, this is the way that I want to invest? Yeah, that's a good question. So I started my career at um, the Commonwealth Bank as, as a, in a balanced equity business. And back then, balanced equity businesses or the Office of Superannuation, went, you, you did bonds, equities, FX, currency, cash, all under the one roof. We're all on the same floor. Uh, and as a graduate, I got to move around all those areas and I ended up in equities. Um, the great thing about equities, from my point of view, is it's the non-mean reverting asset class. So a lot of those other asset class revert to the mean. Uh, equities don't. Um, equities can go up thousands of percent. Amazon's up 85,000% since it listed. Uh, Tencent's up 40,000% since it's listed. TSMC's up 40,000%. So, so things can, trees can grow to the sky and, and it's a game of very few winners and lots of losers. And I suppose I found it easier to get an edge in finding those few winners than it is, say, getting an edge in those other asset classes. Does that mean, as a growth investor, does that mean you don't care about valuation or do you just have a, maybe a different perspective on it than some others? So we do care about valuation, obviously, I mean, and particularly because we run absolute return funds and we need to protect the downside. I just think it's important to understand that valuation is transient. Um, ultimately, we know there's thousands of studies that will tell you that the equities is a game of very few winners and lots of losers. So we could point you to the work of Henrik Bessenbinder, which is in our pack, that basically points out that if you do the buy and hold return of every single company listed on the US stock market for the last 90 years, it's 25,000 companies, yet just 1,000 of them are responsible for all of the returns, the 35 trillion of wealth from the US stock market over that time frame. Um, so that's less than 5% of every company that was ever listed has created all the wealth. In the same breath, if you take that 1,000, just the top 50 make up 40% of that entire wealth. So that's 50 companies out of 25,000. So there is no shortage of evidence out there. And the last thing I'll tell you is the S&P, and everyone knows this one, 
of the S&P 500, 50% of the S&P disappears every 20 years and is replaced. So if you look at the market today, it's, you feel like it's quite easy to see what are the good companies and what are the bad ones, but it's actually very hard to see what are the good ones and the bad ones for the next 20 years. Um, and as a growth investor, our job is to find those few winners and to avoid those and to ignore those few lots of losers, and that's how our process evolves around that. And then coming back to your point about valuation, so ultimately, yes, stocks can get overvalued and undervalued, but it won't change the fact that there's only going to be a few winners. Um, and so from our point of view, we don't like to... I always say, wouldn't you be upset if you sold your Amazon three years ago because you were worried about inflation? Um, inflation, yes, will affect the valuation of Amazon on a short-term view, but on the long-term view, if Amazon's the winner, it will still be the winner. We're going to talk about Amazon in some depth later, I think, but I just wanted to explore this idea of, of valuation a little bit more. I mean, so obviously you're not looking, is it fair to say you're not looking at current year or next year PE ratios? I would argue that if my job is to work out which, if 50% of the S&P disappears every 20 years, and we don't know what the S&P will look like in the next 20 years, I would argue next year's valuation multiple is not that relevant when trying to predict that future outcome. Um, yes, it is relevant on a short-term view, on a six-month view or a three-month view or a one-year view because, as we know, stocks can correct. And, and in our area, they correct probably more than what the value investors investors correct. But I don't think it's relevant on a five- or a ten-year view when you're trying to work out who is that next big winner. And I would argue for all the times that valuation protects you, it can often also send you down the wrong track. At, at, not, at basically ignoring what is the next big winner. And with Amazon being a classic example, where, as I said, it's up 85,000% now, uh, up 500% since we invested just four years ago, um, yet still not on the radar of many investors because it's seen that the valuation is too high. At a, what, two or 300 PE ratio, if that's what you're looking at, it, it's, it's easy, easy to see why people would be put off by that. But... If you're not looking at the PE ratios, what, what do you look at when you're trying to work out what a company's actually worth? Yeah, so there's lots of things we can look at. Um, obviously, DCFs work very well over a long period of time. Uh, in Amazon's case, cash flow multiples work very well. Um, it would surprise you to know that Amazon has never traded above 25 times EBITDA in the last 10 years um, and trades on average at 20 times EBITDA. So it's just a, a cursory look under the surface would have pointed that out to you, but, but many people have been put off by the, the PE ratio. Um, so those are some of the things we can look at. It's also important to learn the lessons of history um, and, and, and also to, to, to point out that digital businesses are very different to physical businesses. So we now live in a world where digital businesses are generally only one winner. Uh, if you look at Google or Facebook or even here in Australia, whether it's realestate.com or car sales. And so now the world is onto this game. And so the multiples for these potential one winners, be it a Uber or an Airbnb in the unlisted world or Netflix in the listed world, are now much, much higher. Um, so it does get harder to find these great winners. It's not as easy as, as finding Google was or Facebook, and even, but even them at the time weren't that easy. Um, but it's important to remember that ultimately what next year's valuation multiple for Netflix is irrelevant. What matters is where it will be in 10 years' time. Uh, and you can come up with some pretty reasonable assumptions that suggest there's still value there today. Okay, well, you kind of led in a little bit to what I wanted to chat about next, actually, so it's a convenient segue. There's a phrase, I think, that almost every investor in the world is terrified of, uh, this time is different. Um, 
But the nature of digital businesses is actually fundamentally different to, to, to physical businesses. So could you actually explain to us what you mean by a network effect and why it matters so much to a modern business? Yeah, so we've been walking around with this concept that digital businesses are different to physical businesses for the best part of six or seven years now. Uh, it was a wonderful discovery for us, and to be fair, we were definitely not the first to discover it. There was many of our peers and contemporaries who've worked this out. Um, yes, it does scare people, um, because people, modern economics that I was taught, I'm an economist, tells you that if someone's making a lot of money, someone else comes along and takes away that money. Um, the reason why it doesn't happen to digital businesses is because they have this thing called network effects that you ask about. So, so the simple way of thinking about this is there used to be 11 search engines in the world, be it AltaVista, Yahoo, Ask Jeeves, um, so on, and now there's just one. It's called Google. Um, how did Google get there? And what a lot of people forget is they were the only ones who didn't advertise. So there was no advertising on Google at the start. Everyone else had advertising. Um, you might remember that scene in The Social Network where the Mark Zuckerberg and... and uh, they're talking about not putting advertising on Facebook. Um, and so from that point of view, that meant that everyone started to look at Google, so everything had to be on Google, so everything started to look at Google, everything had to be on Google, and round and round it went. Google's now worth just over $800 billion. It's the number one search engine in the world. The number two search engine in the world was Yahoo, and they sold it last year for $6 billion. So that's a 99% difference between number one and number two. It doesn't happen in any other industry. You have realestate.com and domain, no one else. You have car sales, no one else. It always happens to digital businesses. The last and most simple way to think about this um, is if to think about, and I use this example a bit, is a lot of us are old enough to remember when we had a physical map. So you had a map for Melbourne, a map for Sydney, a map for Brisbane. The old Melways. A Melways, a UVD. And we had like probably three or four map companies being supported in Australia. And we had 191 countries in the world. And physically, we couldn't have a map for the whole world. It would be too big. Uh, but now that maps have gone digital, there is no reason to have a second map. There's only reason to have one map, which is Google Maps, and it's the map for the whole world. There is an Apple Maps out there, I agree, and there's Waze, but remember Waze is owned by Google, but ultimately you only need two or three. That's what happens when something goes physical to digital, um, and there's nothing you can really do to stop it. Um, and so that network effect means that a lot of these companies are growing well beyond the borders that, that we traditionally thought possible. And so my last point here is I'll point out, you know, Commonwealth Bank will get to a certain size in Australia, can't get bigger. And JP Morgan will get to a certain size but can't get much bigger. Whereas Google and Facebook and obviously Netflix and others can grow, and the video game companies, for instance, can grow all the way across the world without ever even opening offices in many of these countries. And that's what a digital business can do that a physical can't. You've mentioned this idea of very few winners and a lot of losers. What, is, what are the characteristics that actually tell you that a company could be one of those very few winners? Yeah, so from our point of view, if you believe that, that there, there is only few winners and all the academic research suggests there is, then, then what we've learned over a long period of time is there are some key characteristics that identify a great company. Uh, and for us, from our point of view, the first one is growth. So is a company in a growing area? So Apple's a trillion dollar company, but it positioned itself in mobile phones. Uh, so that was a growing area. Um, so tech. If you're not in a growing area, that's for the value guys and we'll, we'll let them go do that. Second, can you leverage that growing area? So you might be in a growing area like e-commerce, but you can't actually leverage it through earnings. Many e-commerce companies can't, some can. Uh, third and most, most important is runway and sustainability. Can you keep that growth going for a long period of time? Um, even a Tesla, in theory, could grow for a long period of time. 
Uh, Apple grew in smartphones for a long period of time. E-commerce will grow for a long period of time. Cloud computing will grow for a long period of time. So is it sustainable? And the last two are super idiosyncratic, I'm afraid, uh, but they work for us, is, is do you have a large controlling shareholder or highly aligned management? Uh, we find time and time again it is the family-run company or the individual control company that ends up winning. Again, look at the mobile phone example. And lastly, most importantly, what's the customer perception of your product? Uh, we live in a world that if the customers don't like your product, you're not going to go very far. Um, and so we spend a lot of time looking at that. And if you have those five things together, then you have a chance of being a great growth company over a long period of time. And time and time again, it's those last two, control and customer perception, that pull a company up where they don't have the longer term view. They don't have the view to run at no profits to eventually make lots of profits, or they don't have the customer-centric view that means the customer is always right. Let's look after the customer at the expense of profits to eventually become very profitable. And it's those five things together that are the great characteristics of the great growth companies, and, and that's what we look for when we go out talking to management. There's a couple of issues that people who are negative on Netflix keep coming back to. So I was hoping you'd be able to talk to them and potentially dispel some of those myths. The first is the increasing amount of cash that the company's burning which I understand is about $3 billion this year, according to Bloomberg analysts, um, which is 40% up on last year. So why would an investor want to invest in a company that's burning an increasing amount of cash? Yeah, okay, so, so in just going, running back over a couple of things we've just said, okay, so we believe the world is a case of very few winners and lots of losers. Remember that top 50 example I just gave you. Secondly, we've seen, we now have the evidence that network effects truly work, uh, be it Google, be it Facebook, and a number of other Amazon, a number of opportunities around the world. And so Netflix is clearly in that conversation today. Um, and so I think it's worth taking a couple of steps back and just taking a much longer term view. Um, so I'm going to make a couple of bold statements here and you tell me if I'm, I'm incorrect. I think internet TV or streaming TV will surpass linear TV in 10 years. And I think most people would agree with me here. I think that's a pretty safe statement. Secondly, I'd say that Netflix is probably the anchor tenant of your streaming service providers. So in the world, you'll probably have three, maybe four of these streaming service providers in the future. But, but I think everyone will have Netflix because it's sort of at the source of the whole, of the whole thing, of the whole content game. Um, and I think most people would agree with that. So then it's simply a case of let's go forward 10 years and work out where, where, how big this company could actually be. And so if we look at Netflix today, What's its total addressable market? How big can Netflix be? And so we see, we see just over 1 billion internet-connected households in the world out of 7 billion people. Uh, and we're ignoring China there, which is about three, 400 million internet-connected households. Out of those 1 billion internet-connected households, Netflix is currently in 10% of them, so about 180 million subscribers. But it's in nearly two-thirds of all US households, if that makes sense. And it's currently charging $10 a month. So let's fast forward 10 years to 2027. In 2027 or 2028, uh, it could be in 400 million houses, it could be in 300 million houses, or it could be 200 million houses. At 400 million houses, which is, or at 300 million houses, let's say the mid case, it's still in less than 25% of all homes in the world. Uh, if it's charging essentially $15 a month by then, it's a $55 billion revenue company. If you assume 30 or 40% EBITDA margins there, you're going to be at sort of 25, 25 billion in EBITDA. You put that on 15 times and you're going to end up with a $400 billion company, if that makes sense. Take the top, top example, the 40 million households, at 17 to 50 a month, you're going to have 80 million in revenue, 50% margins. 
40 billion in EBITDA, put that on 20 times and you've got an $800 billion company. So this is not difficult maths to work out. Um, it's fairly simple to do it. And then to go all the way back to where we are today. So Netflix is currently trading on I think 70 times PE or 35 times EBITDA. Um, and it's net cash negative as you said, but, but if you were Netflix and you knew about the network effect and you knew that this would be a winner takes most, then wouldn't you spend that money also? The last thing I'd say on this is where can it go wrong? And we're not saying it can't go wrong. Obviously it can. But there are two major risks here. One is competition and two is, um, is does it actually get into all these countries like India and Brazil and these other places that are going to help it get to that 400 million or 300 million subscribers. <clears throat> the only thing I'd say about competition is very simple. Is, is we, if you go back to the mobile revolution or the digital advertising revolution, digital advertising took 30% of share. 22% of that share went to Google and Facebook. Two companies took all of it. Everyone else lost. Um, on your phone, there are 60,000 apps. Five of them are worth more than half a trillion dollars. On your television, there's 600 apps that currently stream television. I would argue that you are probably subscribed to two, maybe three at best. And I think if you look around the world, whether it's Disney buying Fox, Time Warner buying AT&T, uh, CBS merging with Viacom, Scripps with Discovery, Channel 9 with Fairfax, everybody is preparing for a world where there's only going to be five on your TV, five, maybe six, and Netflix is going to be one of them. Um, so the mass is not difficult to put together. The upside is there. Um, what I would argue is looking at next, year, next year's multiple is going to help you about as much as it did at Amazon five years ago. <laughs> Whether it works or not, we don't know. There's risks. Things can go wrong, subscriber growth along the way. But ultimately, um, we, have, we have a playbook that suggests that it can get there. And, and I don't think the mass we're putting together is aggressive. I think you've somewhat addressed my second question, but I'll bring it up specifically anyway, just in case there's anything you wanted to add. I think the, the figure you came to was, what was the, the revenue figure you, you had? 80 billion or 55 billion. Yeah, which seems like it could solve this, the problem of this next question, but let's ask it anyway. So when Netflix first launched its streaming service, they were able to buy content very cheaply from third parties. Nobody else was streaming and rights were you know, a dime a dozen. That's changed now and a lot of these companies are either charging a lot more uh, or they're launching streaming services of their own, for example, Disney. As a result, the cost of content has gone up significantly and Netflix is now making more content rather than buying it from third parties. Uh, but even the cost of making that content is very high. How do you handle this, this ever-rising cost? I think I'd, I'd say two things. One, you can only watch so much TV and digitalization means we all watch the same TV. Uh, generally, we generally are watching the same programs because we talk about them, whether it's House of Cards, Game of Thrones, etc. Um, secondly, every year they make content. That content is in their library forever. So they're building a, an asset that holds forever. And lastly, I'd say this, is if you go home today and log into Alta Vista and look for something, you're not going to find anything there. There used to be a lot there. It's not there anymore. If you log into Yahoo, you're not going to find half the stuff. Um, all I'll say is that I don't think Nicole Kidman, Jeremy Clarkson, all these people are that loyal uh, to, the, to the current person they're subscribed to. And so it's get big or go home, and whoever's the biggest is going to win here, and Netflix is the biggest already. Uh, that's why all these mergers are occurring. Um, but it's important to flag, as I, and I just want to go back here, is say, this is just one example of how network effects and we can invest and take a view. You're asking us to take a five or a 10 year view. That's what you're paying us to do. 
Um, the mass still adds up, and that's what we expect to happen. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is very, the, the last, yeah, the, there's a very hot topic now. To be fair, this used to be the same conversations when we were investing in Facebook at 60 times earnings in 2014. Uh, and now it's 20 times earnings and it's got problems because uh, it's got so big. Uh, so it's important to understand that the large, large numbers is working against Facebook, but it's actually working in Netflix's favour right now. Uh, and that's why the near-term multiple is less important. Want to relate it back to one of the other companies we've actually already discussed, which is Amazon. Amazon, of course, is one of the biggest competitors for Netflix in this streaming space. So given your views on Netflix and that you obviously think that they're going to win in this race, do you think it's wise for Amazon to be investing heavily in this content? I didn't say Netflix would win. I said there'd be four to five winners, of which I think Amazon will be one of them also. Um, it's important to understand here that, um, let's, as I said, assume there's four or five sites on your telly that work, that do streaming content. So that's Netflix, Amazon, probably Disney, HBO, maybe Hulu, or maybe a local one like Stan for each country. That could easily happen. Um, the point is, who's losing is TV. So Channel 9, Channel 7, or anyone who doesn't have a video over-the-top service. Uh, so the best way to think about this is, is the same thing that happened in newspapers, is where we all essentially now read four or five newspapers in the world, and all the other ones are essentially becoming just a local reporter. Um, and so the loser here is TV. And so it's important to understand that um, even if you look at digital payments, for instance, you have MasterCard, Visa, PayPal, which are only 31% of all payments in the world today. And so they can all win together. They don't actually have to compete against each other because the loser is cash. Amazon, Netflix can all win together because the loser is TV. So if Amazon ends up being the Yahoo, for example, of streaming, you still think that there's some value in that for... I would... I, yeah, so, so, so Google was, was, was obviously the first. Uh, Facebook, if you look at Facebook, there are other social network sites, be it Snapchat or Twitter. Um, in this case, I, th I don't think that someone will end up being a Yahoo. But I think you'll have three or four subscribing bases that you are. But I'm pretty sure Netflix will be the anchor tenant for all of them. And so you'll have Netflix and Stan or Amazon or Netflix and Hulu and Amazon or Netflix and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but what's important to understand, if Netflix is in 25% of all households and Amazon's in 20, you know, we could go to 60, 70% of all households, really. I mean, we're, we're not even got aggressive mass here 10 years out. So, And it's also important to argue that when I said that last thing I'd just say here about price, Netflix is in um, charging $10 a month, roughly, $15 on the family plan. Um, it's in two-thirds of all US homes, yet it's only 7% of the US pay TV pie, which is $90 billion per annum. So either pay TV is charging way too much money or Netflix is charging a lot less. Uh, and so there is room to move on price and there's room to move on anything. But ultimately, yes, that's the world we see in 10 years' time. For us today, Netflix looks like the best investment. Um, whether it works out that way, we'll see. But that's what stop losses and other things are for through the journey. All right, well, let's stay on Amazon. Just going back to what we were saying before about, you know, Amazon obviously looks very expensive on the surface. I was wondering if we could dive into that a little bit more. I think, you know, PE ratio of 200 is, is roughly what they say. Why is it that accounting earnings, you know, your net profit after tax, why is that not what we should be looking at? And what should we be looking at when we're trying to get an understanding of what Amazon's worth? Yeah, and again, this is, um, it's something that people struggle with with digital businesses, and we do find it obviously in Australia because we don't have many. Um, 
so go all the way back to what I said at the start about Google. How did Google get to number one? They got there by not advertising. So they got there by not monetizing their business, by loss leading for years, and then ultimately $800 billion. And everyone else is zero. Somewhere in a bar in North America, there's a guy who used to run Ask Jeeves who's saying, I missed it by that much. Um, and I feel sorry for him, but he, he listened to his shareholders too early on uh, and made too much, tried to make short-term profits at the short-term of long-term gains. Uh, no one gets this better than Jeff Bezos, right? So, so he has been spending for growth for years now. Um, everyone says Amazon doesn't make any money, but they have 178 distribution centers around the world and all of them cost about a billion dollars. They're the largest cloud computing provider in the world with the largest data center workforce in the world. Uh, and they've spent billions of dollars of there. And Amazon hasn't done a rights issue since 1998. So, and they don't have any debt. So where's all the money coming from? If they don't make any money, how are they building all this stuff? And the answer is they are making money. They're making huge cash flow. It's just all the cash comes in, they spend. It all comes out in depreciation. Depreciation um, obviously produces your net profit, but it's not actually a, um, it's not actually a, uh, a cash charge. And so, yeah, the best way to look at the company has been for years on EBITDA or gross profit. And on EBITDA, as I said, it's on 22 times today uh, and has held that multiple for about 10 years. And on price to sales, it's only on two and a half times. Um, yet yet I can, I'm buying Netflix on 10 times sales and I'm buying cloud computing companies on 12 times sales. And Amazon is the largest cloud computing company in the world and it's on two and a half times sales. So it's actually quite cheap. Um, so from our point of view, yeah, you just got to, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, you just got to do a bit more work. And, and I would argue with Amazon in particular, it's so obvious that anybody who's not looking at it is quite frankly just being a bit lazy uh, because it just requires a little bit of digging under the surface to put this together. Um, and yeah, unfortunately, that's the work you've got to do, which luckily we did about four or five years ago. Uh, but we bought it at $475. It had already gone up an awful lot by the time we bought it. So we thought we were late. Uh, and I can assure you today at $1,800, we still don't think you're too late to look at Amazon. All right. Well, let's get off the big tech companies for a bit. Thank um, you. We've, we've, <laughs> <laughs> I think we've spoken enough about those. Earlier this year, I interviewed a guy about what he calls juvenescence, which is the, the science of longevity and, and the medicine that's involved with it. And it was very much a conceptual discussion about you know, things that could happen in the future. Uh, but from what I understand, you've recently started investing in some, I guess, innovative health solutions. Is that, is that a, fair, a fair label for them? Yes, no, we have. I mean, so from our point of view, um, obviously we're looking, so we're a growth investor, not, not just a tech investor. And I know we, we always get stuck on tech, but we are a growth investor. So we are trying to find out how things will change in the next 15 to 20 years and which companies will be the important enablers of that. Um, with health, I think it's pretty obvious that the advances in technology and be it computer processing allows us to do things like genomic sequencing, uh, allows us to bring down the price of genomic sequencing and be much more preventative in medicine. So, so when we look at healthcare, we're looking at anyone who can save us money because let's face it, we can't afford to keep spending at the rate we're spending. Um, and so here we're very much looking at weapons manufacturers and the war um, is the best way to play it because we don't we're not, biotech companies can be very binary, particularly the small ones. So we're looking at companies like Illumina that do build genomic sequencing machines. We're looking at Intuitive Surgical that does robotic surgery. Uh, but we're also even looking, if you want low PE alternatives, even the health insurance companies 
that, um, that ultimately uh, will be huge beneficiaries of, quite frankly, what will be better outcomes for life. Uh, and as long as they're not doing life insurance on an annuity, which is not great, and they're actually trying to keep you out of hospital, then their ability to reprice or dynamically price their offerings and provide a better outcome, not for their patients, but also for themselves and also for the government, um, is, is very high. And you don't have to pay much more than 15 times earnings for any of these companies, yet they have this wonderful structural opportunity in front of them. Let's explore the, I guess, the second order effects of some of the things that you just mentioned there. I wanted to particularly focus on the insurance side of things. You mentioned that it's a positive, these, health, these developments for health insurers, but potentially a negative for annuities providers. I was wondering if you could expand a little bit more on that and explain what some of the risks are and what some of the opportunities are for the, for the different types of insurances there. Yeah, okay, so, I mean, uh, look, very simply, if everyone lives a lot longer, then, um, then annuity providers are, have, have got a problem with their models. And in the same breath, if everyone lives a lot longer, a health insurer has, has a longer life of customer uh, for their customer. And ultimately, more importantly, from the health insurance side, maybe not from the annuity side, because obviously they can reprice and deal with that. Um, from the health insurance side, it does allow them to provide more dynamic offerings. And it's important to understand that in most countries, not everyone's insured. Uh, Australia is at a very high rate, but in many other countries, it's much, and the US is much higher, many other countries, it's much lower. And so if you know, if you can use data and you can use preventative medicine and you can use all these things to know your outcomes better, then you can price your insurance better. And so you can expand your offering. Um, it also solves the government. The government's, I mean, so we own a company called Centene in the US, which does Medicaid. Um, and Medicaid, you know, they are outsourcing for the government. So they're essentially providing a government program for the government. They just do it 10 times better because they do it in lots of different places. And so they can use their data and, and their inputs to, to improve outcomes. And so it's a, it's a I, I, I hate to say it, but it's a win-win-win for, uh, for the patient, for the insurer and for the government. And that's what we see the insurance industry offering, particularly the really big ones. Yeah, well, I think... Even if the prices don't come down for insurance, I'm sure many people will be happy with longer and healthier lifespans. <laughs> just think the net benefit of um, being insured will, will improve for people and their ability to offer stuff will improve. And it's all because of technology. Um, and it's important to understand with these technology companies is, and all these things, it's not, it's not that Facebook and Google were so amazing at what they did. It's just the internet ended up on a telephone and everybody had to advertise on a mobile phone and they collected it. Uh, Netflix should have died six or seven times, uh, but televisions ended up on the internet and Netflix happens to be the guys who got themselves in the right position. So, so it's the structural changes we're looking for and then the investments after that. Um, we're not saying these guys are the greatest companies in the world, they just have got themselves in a good position and they've generally got there by not making any money for a long time. So it's important to understand how you value that. Well, I think that leads into the next part of our discussion, which is about the next mega corporation, you know, the next Google or Facebook or Apple. I know in the past you've said that you think this, that the next one will come from gaming. Is that still the case? Yeah, I think from our point of view, as I said, we're trying to, so to bring it back, equities is a game of few winners. Um, we're trying to identify structural changes and the, the resulting winners. So there's a structural change about the fact we're all living longer and there'll be winners out of that and losers. Um, we think interactive entertainment is taking share from regular entertainment. Um, I, interactive entertainment, and if anyone's got any children playing Fortnite, they'll understand that, that they can log on and talk to their friends and play a game in a social manner rather than 
passively sit and watch television. Um, so interactive entertainment will take share. Um, if that's the case, then, then interactive entertainment companies is probably a good place to look for structural growth companies. Structural earnings growth usually equals structural share price growth, and so that's, that's sort of an obvious place to look. Um, as we see it at the moment, video games, yes, it's an exciting place to invest, and it's important to understand that um, the network effects around these games are quite strong. Uh, and also important to understand, remember, it's not that they were doing anything great, it's just the internet allowed games to be played interactively, and so suddenly they had this, these characteristics that they didn't have previously. Uh, which was bad game, good game, bad game, good game, bad game, good game. Now it's good game forever. Um, yeah, so from our point of view, if you look at the user numbers, the engagement and the monetization, you're, you're talking about companies that have engagement and user growth that's, that's up there with a Facebook or a Twitter, yet their valuation is significantly lower. So their ability to monetize that over time is quite high. And the biggest video game company in the world outside of Tencent in China, but non-China, is, uh, is Activision Blizzard and it has a market cap of only $60 billion. Um, and if you add up the market cap of all the video game companies in the world, you get to less than $200 billion, uh, which is the market cap of Disney. Um, so in theory, there's, there's, there's a lot of, just on looking at the surface, there's a lot of opportunity here. Uh, the last thing I'd say is that, that there is a sort of free options to the upside and things like eSports and other things that were coming along. We are seeing this disturbing trend of, of sports losing TV ratings for the first time in years in the last couple of years. Um, and we do think a lot of that eyeballs is going to esports, and so we are seeing franchises like the New England Patriots are buying esports franchises, etc., to diversify their business models. So, so ultimately, esports is going to have a role to play, and it's important to remember that in Activision's case, they actually own the sport. Uh, and so, how big could that be? We don't know. In the near term, not very big, but if you want us to take a ten-year view, it could actually be quite big. Of course, what some people might not realise is that even here in Australia, uh, we've got major sports teams buying up esports teams. It was only last year, I think, that the Adelaide Crows p purchased one of the, the biggest esports brands in the country. So there's definitely a perception that it's all happening in China and in Korea, but it's all over the world. It's in the US, it's in, it's in Europe, and it's right here at home in Australia. Yeah, and we would temper people's enthusiasm here. It's going to be a bit like World Series cricket. There's going to be... A lot of money go in, a lot of people are going to lose their shit. Uh, but in the end, um, the product will grow. Um, and so everyone's diving in as an option for growth. And I suspect a lot of them will lose their shit um, because there really is only a few sports in the world. And, and, uh, and so there's really only room for a few video game sports. So I temper their enthusiasm, but it is an option for upside. Well, that's it for the main part of the show. But I've got a couple of regular questions that I like to ask every guest. So let's have a look at those for a minute. Firstly, I was wondering, could you share something that you've read recently? It could be a book, an article, or research that really blew you away. Yeah, okay. So, so I've, I, I often mention The Second Machine Age, which is a book I've forgotten people who, the exact guys and the names who write it, but it's very good for understanding these concepts around technology that I've talked about. So it's called The, the Second Machine Age um, and worth having a look at, and I'll come back to you with the the authors. I can tell you one of their surnames is McAfee, but I can't remember the other. <laughs> I apologise. Um, outside of that, um, you know, there's Besson Binder paper on that I mentioned earlier about the 5% of winners, 5% of all listed companies actually create all the value, I think is well worth having a look. Um, but those are the two things I would flag to. And it's as I, as I keep coming back to, it's important to understand that equities is a case of very few winners and lots of losers. It's always been this way. 
just 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 work back towards um, just think about aeroplanes. There's two people in the world who can make an aeroplane, Boeing and Airbus. Hundreds of people have tried. Uh, Embraer and Bombardier are very small players, and so you know there's there's always think about mobile phones. Mobile phones was a great place to invest, but one company got to a trillion dollars, and everyone else went broke. Whether it's Motorola, uh, Ericsson, Nokia, BlackBerry, Samsung's obviously up there as well. But it's always a case of very few winners, lots of losers. And I think the important thing about that book, if you read it, is you'll realise that in a digital world, think about the map example I just gave you, this is actually going to get worse, not better. Um, and so it's always important to think about that when you invest. Most importantly for the stocks that you have that will work and keep working, but also most important about stopping yourself, stop losses on the losers, because it is inevitable that you will invest in more losers than winners. And just for our audience, I will put some links in the post for, to both of those books. So if you just jump on Livewire and find the post for this podcast, there should be links out so that you can access them yourself. Second of our regular questions is, if you could go back in time to when you were finishing school or university and give yourself just one piece of investing advice, what would it be? Uh, run your winners. These, as I said, there's very few great companies. When you find them, you want to keep them. If the, so we always, and we haven't talked about this much on the podcast, but when we look for companies, we're always looking for runways, runways of growth. Um, in Australia, we think Treasury Wine actually has a wonderful runway of growth of selling wine into China. Telstra does not have a runway to growth um, today. So yes, Telstra might be a good investment on a one or a two year view, but Treasury Wine's more likely to be a good investment on a 10 year view. Um, and so always think about those runways and run your winners. And, and, and most importantly, you know, think about a CSL in Australia, which just continues to grow and grow and grow into, into the blood plasma market. Um, don't ever sell your winners because you're worried about something completely different from the winners. So inflation or high multiples or et cetera. When you've got them, keep them because uh, you're always working towards finding those great winners. And then lastly, and most importantly, always be prepared to accept that you're wrong because the stats will tell you that you're going to be wrong more than you're right and the quicker you accept that, the better because ultimately you're working towards finding those great winners and for every Apple, you probably bought an HTC or a Nokia or an Ericsson along the way and the key was to cut the HTC, the Nokia and the Ericsson and run, to, run the Apple. Last and most important thing here, sorry, just, to, just to, I don't want to labour this point. Stocks can go up thousands of percent, yet they can only fall 100%. So it's asymmetrically in your favour to be long stocks. The problem is only a few go up thousands and lots fall 100. So just remember that when you're, when you're picking stocks. All right. Now, just before we jump into this last question, I do like to insert a bit of a disclaimer. Don't try this at home. We're not actually suggesting that you should go out and put all of your money into a single share. This is supposed to be an exercise in long-term thinking and a little bit of fun. So with that being said, if the market was going to close for the next five years, starting from tomorrow, and you could only own shares in one company, what would it be? Yeah, it's easy. It's Amazon. Um, and I'm sorry to keep going back to the same point. Uh, Amazon is just 3% of all retail in the US, yet it's more than 50% of all incremental e-commerce parcels. Um, its runway for growth in retail just in the US is still very, very long. Outside of the US, it's obviously much less. Cloud computing is just 6% of computing in the world. Infrastructure as a service is just 3%. Amazon's the biggest player. It only has two competitors. 
If you just take those two runways and play them out over the next five to 10 years, I think we'll all agree the earnings of Amazon are going to continue to grow. Um, and as I said about multiples earlier, multiples are transient. Um, they ultimately, they may re-rate and may de-rate. I'm not saying now's the right time to buy Amazon, but if on, on a five to 10 year view, I'm pretty relaxed that the multiple will re-rate and de-rate, but Amazon's earnings will catch up. And I'm also pretty relaxed that no competitors are going to catch them from here. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. Nick, thanks for sharing your thoughts and your time with us today. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Appreciate it.